0: You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally.
1: Hello, everyone. This is
2: Harry Sambasim. I'm the Associate Director of Equity Research at BMO Capital Markets. In this edition of the Intune podcast series, I'm joined by members of BMO's financials team
1: to talk about Canadian banks and insurance companies. I will now turn it over to Sorab Movahedi, BMO's Canadian banks analyst.
2: Hey, thanks, Harry. My name is Sorab Movahedi. I am a Managing Director with BMO Capital Markets covering the Canadian banks. I am going to do this podcast today with my partner, uh, Tom McKinnon, also managing director of capital markets, covering life insurance companies, asset managers, and uh, some non-bank diversifieds. And what we wanted to do today was uh, go through a few topics of interest, given the circumstances that financials in Canada find themselves in, and do a bit of a compare and contrast as to how it compares to the global financial crisis of about a decade or so ago. So one of the areas that we have been fielding calls has to do with the strength or the balance sheet strength of banks and life as it relates to this crisis versus the previous one. And so, Tom, I'm going to come to you and ask you to kick it off and tell us how the life are positioned today versus 10 years ago to, to weather the storm that, uh, that we're in the midst of.
1: Yeah, thanks, Saurabh. You know, if we cut to the chase in terms of levels of excess capital and the sensitivities of excess capital swings in interest rates and equity markets, this is a completely different ballgame than it was in 2008. Back then, these guys were running with skinny capital ratios and any significant declines in interest rates or equity markets was just going to crush their capital. And we saw them go into the market to get more money. If we look now, the excess capital positions are very strong. And the, uh, um, there's lots of breathing room on these like hat ratios. Uh, they're running in the 140 to 150% range. The, their regu- the supervisory targets are around 100. There's ample excess capital. And the, the big thing that uh, I think investors got to understand is the sensitivity of this capital is just fractions of what it was in the global financial crisis, like one-sixth, one-tenth, of uh, the sensitivities we saw back then. And this is really due to the fact that the companies have really de-risked, hedged, proved cash flow matching, changed product mix, passed on more of the risk to the consumer as opposed to keeping it. That's the surprising difference I've kind of noticed over the last... uh, while and I'm, I still think investors still inappropriately go by the 2008 playbook here. When in fact these guys have ample capital with very limited sensitivities associated with uh, swings in interest rates or equity markets right now. Um, what about you, sir? What are you seeing in that?
2: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, point of reference. I think much like uh, your companies, the Canadian banks uh, truly come into this crisis, this uh, pandemic-driven crisis from a position of strength. I think they have more capital. They have higher quality capital. They're certainly operating in a more robust regulatory framework. The regulator is stress-testing them. They're all operating with ample buffers to regulatory minimums, whether it's around their capital ratios whether it's around their uh, liquidity coverage ratios. So different ball of wax altogether, whereas banks and the Canadian banks to some extent may have been at the in the crosshairs of the last financial crisis. We've heard a lot of people talk about them being part of the solution this round. They certainly are part of the solution insofar as they will be well positioned to help transmit. Uh, liquidity through the system that is being provided by the central banks. And they're certainly sitting with very strong balance sheets to help absorb some of the demands that will be placed on that balance sheet, both from a funding perspective, but also from a credit quality and RWA inflation perspective. I want to be clear, though, that while they have very good buffers, that doesn't mean to say the buffers won't get tested. So, for example, as borrowers look to shore up their own balance sheets, as the borrowers look to beef up their own liquidity, they will draw down on their bank lines. That will put some pressure on the liquidity available for the system. Certainly, put some pressure on the banks and some of the liquidity coverage ratios, for example, which have ample room to regulatory minimums are going to get stretched here. But the regulator has been very forward thinking. In our view, the regulator has provided sufficient and frequent commentary to almost uh, encourage banks to use some of the buffers they have. And so as you think about negative credit quality migration associated with this COVID-19 pandemic, you would expect risk-weighted assets, for example, to increase at the banks. But with the ample buffers that they have in place and the regulatory forbearances that have been introduced, those buffers will get tested, but we don't see the banks burning through those buffers, at least not under plausible assumptions. Do you think the balance sheet and capital positions for the LIFECOs goes coming out of Q1 2020, are they going to get stressed with the downdraft drafting equity markets with the volatility and the decline in the fixed income or the US 10 year, for example, being down 120 basis points? How do you think about it from the LIFECOs goes perspective?
1: Yeah, uh, sorry. We did a a note on this on March twenty third, where we actually assumed the quarter ended then, and we said, what do these like at ratios look like? And uh, surprisingly, they actually go up. And I'm sure that uh, um, most people don't necessarily appreciate that. Hey, the equity market sensitivity is is minimal, but certainly decline in equity markets is going to hurt them. And you can take, in Manulife's case, some of their oil and gas and private equity holdings and mark those things to market. And uh, you, when you do all that work, you've also got to take into account that all this excess capital they hold is largely in fixed income, largely government bonds, and those, you know, the market values of those go up as the rates go down. And it's probably, it, a lot of it's in US dollar stuff as well, and the Canadian dollars kind of decline. So you work all that kind of stuff through you actually find out that the capital has actually gone up. And that's helped by widening credit spreads too. If credit spreads come back in, you get a reversal of that to some extent. But nonetheless, if anything, this has been modest positive. And the spreads come back the other way. Even if the equity markets stay down here, they're still going to be solid. So we're still talking even better like at ratios at Q120 than they were in uh, Q419, which is uh, pretty uh, impressive, I'd say. And I don't think investors really appreciate that. And overall, the book values are going to be flat just to modestly down one or two percent quarter over quarter. Uh, you know, so I would look back to the fourth quarter of 2018, we had 14 percent quarter over quarter decline in equity markets then. Interest rates went down 40 or 50 basis points. The hits to Lycat Capital and Book Value per Share for the Life Coast are pretty negligible. So, you know, in terms of their balance sheets being able to withstand this stuff, uh, I think it's pretty evident that they can. What about the banks in that regard? It's a good question. I mean, the banks obviously run pretty
2: diversified businesses. I would say, though, that uh, some of what we're seeing here is going to manifest itself into probably some credit issues for the banks. And the banks being in the business of uh, making loans, underwriting credit risk, will have to deal with the challenges that their borrowers are, are dealing with. And this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, I think, compounds the felony in a variety of ways. But, uh, but for the banks, what they're faced with will be an across all geographies, across all sectors, across all rating spectrums, negative migration and uh, potential credit problems. If you think about more recently, for example, in 2015, 2016, the oil and gas or the energy space and the direct lending there for the banks probably resulted cumulatively in a in a 3.6% of the loans were written off. We would expect at least that would be the case in the coming four to six quarters for the banks, given where oil prices have gone. Obviously, sectors like the hospitality or the transportation or a variety of consumer discretionary sectors are particularly hard hit uh, right now. But the banks have generally run pretty diversified portfolios, certainly from a corporate lending perspective. They have gravitated towards higher Credit quality. Their corporate loan books have low probability of default, relatively low probability of default associated with them. And uh, in their consumer lending books, where quite a bit of it is resident in Canada, they are secured lenders, where a lot of the uh, loan exposure, the credit quality is either Uh, Collateralized, if you will, by by the value of the home and or benefits from low loan-to-value ratios, 55% across the uninsured book of the banks at the end of uh, Q1, or has insurance from ultimately a sovereign-owned entity called CMHC. So we expect there will be credit issues for the banks. We expect uh, those issues will both be earnings issues and will you know and will hurt the uh, balance sheets to some extent insofar as they will have to absorb the higher risk weightings associated with negative migration. But we don't think those credit issues, whether it's uh, this quarter or in the coming quarters, will, uh, will cause them to burn through their buffers. When you, when you think about some of what I've just said, and you think about the, the credit portfolios of the LifeCo's, do you anticipate any credit issues for, uh, for your uh, companies under coverage?
1: Yeah, so uh, maybe we just start off with, uh, you know, what's on the balance sheets for the life because they don't lend, you know, money to individuals or small businesses. The, the largest uh, um, invested assets they have category is, is bonds. That's about 70% of their invested assets. And the biggest component of, of the bonds are government bonds. Uh, then followed by corporate bonds. And the biggest component of the corporate bonds are largely uh, those of financial companies, largely banks and utility companies, i.e. companies that issue bonds. In the fourth quarter, only 2% of their bond portfolio was below investment grade. Now we saw in the uh, global financial crisis, they had credit hits associated with impairments on the bonds. And that was when the banks were really stressed over you know housing related issues. So that was Lehman Brothers and Wachovia and Washington Mutual and AIG. I remember all these names. So when they went, uh, 8% of some of the uh, Life Coast total financials bonds became impaired. So what we did in terms, we just, in March 24th, we wrote a note. We did two tests here. We just took whatever the uh, impairments were as a percentage of invested assets just apply them 2008 and 2009 just apply them to their invested assets right now so it's almost like a double whim. we get COVID 19 and we get the same credit hits we had back in the global financial crisis and these were hits of between three and nine like at points and as uh, you remember you need around 100 to 110 and they're sitting in the 130 to 140 range and which could almost be modestly higher if we marked everything to the first quarter of 2020. So good room there. Uh, You mentioned energy and consumer cyclicals, and I agree with you there that these could be uh, stressed cases as well. These are less than 5% of the total invested assets of these companies anyways, but if we actually took, uh, uh, you know, impaired 8%, 10% of all your energy bonds and the same for all your consumer cyclical bonds, you know, and... uh, Then we'd probably find that the LICAD hit would only be three and four points as well. So manageable there. So, you know, the bottom line is they can they've got the balance sheets be able to handle both the downtick in the equity markets and interest rates as well as some pretty tough credit hits as well. So you know that's that's what I'm thinking in terms of you know, potential in in terms of credit hits. The investors are asking, so what does that mean to earnings going forward here? And uh, that's a tough one. How are you able to uh, work around that one, Sorab?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's obviously uh, the question of the hour, so to speak, and um, much like you have, we've tried to go through scenario analyses for the banks to try and uh, determine some of the potential implications, both from an earnings perspective, but also balance sheet, and you know, for the banks, uh, investors, the dividends are very important. So, from a payout ratio perspective as well. Look. Um, Obviously, the severity of this will will ultimately dictate what the earnings impact of it is, both from credit issues, but also from the earning, uh, from the economic recovery and what sort of earnings the banks will be able to to realize there. When we have done our stress analyses, what we have found is the banks seem to still be adequately capitalized. Uh, you know, in in the realm of plausible assumptions, I think earnings in 2020, for example, being down 20% plus relative. To 19 is is uh, is conceivable. It could be higher, depending on the severity. Obviously, economists are talking about large uh, unemployment spikes, big GDP growth declines, and these are all bad from a bank earnings outlook perspective. But I would also say that uh, you know, in these types of environments, given the diversified businesses that the banks have, sometimes there will be some natural offsets. For example, in the trading businesses, given the amount of volatility we've seen, they should be able to, to enjoy some offsets. When we think broadly about bank earnings going forward, uh, not just in 2020, but beyond 2020, the shape of the recovery or the severity of the hit will matter. And uh, if you think about historical circumstances where the banks have been faced with economic recessions that have hurt both the corporate borrower and the consumer borrower, then uh, it could take them three, four years to recover back to 2019 levels. Here I'm thinking about what happened between 1981 and 82, that recession, and then ultimately rebounding to 81 earnings levels, not until 85. Thinking about what happened in 91. And ultimately, coming out of the 92 recession and and not getting back to 91 levels until 1994, I think a good outcome would be actually what happened in early 2000, where earnings declined in 2002 and rebounded quickly. But that also was a scenario where you didn't, in Canada anyway, really have a consumer uh, recession, which seems to be, all but a foregone conclusion right now. I wonder if you, if you think about the earnings, both short-term from your scenario analysis. Oh, well, I should probably also add that in the scenario analysis that we've done, not only the earnings go down to 20% or so, but the dividend payout ratios stay below 100%. And that's important because it gives us some degree of comfort that the dividends continue to be an important part of the return equation for the Canadian bank stocks. But Tom, maybe, you know, maybe just to try and uh, wrap it up so that we don't go too long here. What do you think about the picture for the life cause, both near term and longer term, as you kind of emerge from this, what do you think uh, in a post COVID-19 world, whatever that normal is, what do you expect out of the life cause? So take both the short and the longer term into perspective, and then I'll do the same.
1: Uh, I mean, The first thing I'll, I'll hit here is, uh, is that we're probably going to see, you know, 15 to 20% decline in earnings for the, you know, 2020, at least for the next 12 months. And that's really as a result of the decline in equity markets, you know, 30 to 50% of the earnings of these guys of the life codes are related to wealth management. So the second point to make is I don't think there's really significant uh, issues with respect to any kind of increased mortality Uh, you know, the 200,000 they're talking about, it's 7% of the annual deaths in the US. And these guys do make money when a Newton's die. And uh, so I think net net, it's not going to be a material issue in terms of uh, potential uh, impact from increased mortality. But the three points we're probably looking at is, you know, in a post COVID-19 world, one is, I think this is probably is going to increase demand insurance products, especially in Asia, where the majority of the population is underinsured. Uh, we saw the same thing sort of post SARS, where uh, insurance sales do go up. And I think if anything, this COVID-19 has made people a little bit more aware of their own mortality. So, and the needs of that become a little bit more aware. So that's probably good. The, the second is the the Life Co kind of worked to address the, uh, you know, it's sort of the retirement gap, as the population ages. And uh, this has probably made us more aware of that and took a little bit of a widen that gap to some extent. So they'll uh, come out with further products to kind of address this, so that's probably pretty good. The third is I see them as this whole uh, digitization of the consumers just becoming increasingly important. It's probably been mega charged by all this stay at home stuff. So, you know, the big guys who've invested in technologies are, are going to be uh, able to prosper here. And uh, some of the smaller ones are going to be left behind. So we could probably see some, uh, you know, consolidation going forward. Uh, the, these guys do talk about uh, Sun 8 to 10% earnings growth over the medium term, life 10 to 12. You know, to some extent, it might have been augmented a bit by buybacks. That's off the table right now. Probably a a little, you know, slowdown in sales just as a result of the consumer being hit. You know, these things will be uh, uh, moderated to some extent, but uh, by and large, I still see these things as certainly uh, growing in the, you know, mid to high single digits post this uh, when we get, uh, you know, when we kind of lap the impact of this and uh, certainly increasing their dividends in the same kind of uh, range. What about you, Sarat?
2: You know, the bottom line, I think, for banks is that they have always been and probably will continue to be viewed as levered plays on the, on the economy. So a lot will depend on the, on the shape of the recovery and the strength of the economic recovery. Of course, in Canada, we benefit from immigration. So household formation should continue to be relatively strong. The Canadian banks obviously operate geographically diverse businesses And my guess is that uh, they will continue to lean on that. Uh, I think coming out of the COVID-19 scenario, globally, organizations will look to probably diversify their supply chains there i think that will happen at the expense of for example china and marginally beneficial to other uh, economies whether it's in southeast asia or in latin and i think uh, scotia bank is at least well positioned there i think one of the outcomes as part of the response to the covid-19 is even a further lengthening of the low rate environment and of course banks rely uh, to some extent about uh, 50% of their revenues are spread dependent. So a prolonged low rate environment or a lengthened uh, low rate environment will have will cause some revenue growth challenges. They will probably look to offset some of the margin compression uh, with uh, increased volume growth. Again, I think a company like Scotia having a footprint in the Pacific Alliance region uh, where credit penetration is maybe about half or less than half of what it is in the developed world. Places like Canada and the U.S. should have some uh, relative uh, benefits over there. And then, of course, you talked a lot about the, the impact of digitization, stay-at-home, virtual, and uh, ultimate use of technology as we move on. And I think the banks in Canada have been on the front foot in that regard. Generally speaking, probably spending 8 to 10%, maybe upwards of 11% at certain banks over the last three or so years each year on, uh, on improving the bank, changing the bank. And so with, uh, with a tougher revenue environment, potentially at least near term, My guess is there's going to be a lot more reliance on getting efficiency improvements and the investments they've made should bode well, both from uh, staying relevant to their customers, but also delivering services uh, with a lower cost. But I think in a post-COVID-19 world, the banks can probably still get back to the types of mid to high single-digit earnings growth, but I don't think that will happen in the next couple of years. That will probably happen in, in beyond the next couple of years, depending on the on the severity of this. We could probably spend a lot more time talking about this, but this is probably as good as it gets right now with a couple of guys sitting in their basements having issued debris session. Hopefully, people find it helpful. So why don't I turn it over to uh, Harry? Thanks, Sora. And for all our listeners, thank you very much for listening. And if you need more information, I encourage you to uh, call Tom McKinnon or Sorab Movaheadi directly using their contacts, or also call our BMO
0: salespeople. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.